0: This is Macro Horizons, Episode 5, Jerome and Richard's Excellent Adventure, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with John Hill to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk for the upcoming week of February 11th, and a friendly reminder of the approaching Valentine's Day holiday. Just a few short shopping days remain, and anything bond bullish would be a perfect fit. i-a-n dot l-y-n-g-e-n at BMO.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to make this as interactive as possible. So, that being said, let's get started. By way of a quick update on our thinking, the treasury market put in a solid performance last week. The ability of 10-year yields to press back toward the bottom of the yield range despite the treasury auctions, particularly 10s and 30s, I think is pretty telling of the stance of investors at this particular moment. On one hand, an auction concession might have been a nice addition, allowing for a better dip buying opportunity for treasury investors, but the fact of the matter is we saw strong sponsorship in 3s, 10s, and 30s for very elevated auction sizes it's interesting to note the auction sizes are expected to remain stable for the rest of the year and so the ability to absorb this amount of supply at these yield levels is telling and ultimately contributes to our more constructive outlook on treasuries the retracement of equities has also helped support the treasury market However, there's more going on than simply the classic risk on, risk off that has been so pivotal in pushing 10-year yields back to that 254 level seen earlier this year. In fact, we've been waiting for the moment in which bad economic data becomes good for risk assets because it implies that the Fed is going to be on hold for even longer. And what we have seen is evidence that that episode might be a bit short-lived at least in a historical context. By this, we mean that if the Fed's clearly communicated intention to remain on hold, at least for the next couple quarters, isn't enough to reignite some of the bullishness in the equity market, then the question becomes, does the Powell put need to be restruck with some implication of a willingness to cut rates in the near to medium term? Conceptually, we think it's way too early for the Fed to start considering cutting rates. After all, there is still the balance sheet runoff to be dealt with. The idea that the Fed might soon address the balance sheet becomes a lot more plausible if and when the sell-off in the equity market persists. In terms of specific trading levels... On the bullish side, we're looking for a break of the 260 range to portend to move to 254 in 10s. That was the low yield mark seen earlier this year. A break of that clears the way for 250. Once we get between 240 and 250 in 10s, I expect that the rally would meet some far more significant resistance. The logic here is with effective Fed funds trading at 240, it's going to be very hard to justify a foray much beyond there, at least until we get some type of signal out of the Fed related to the balance sheet or a potential for a cut over the next few quarters. We still like the curve flattener, especially in the very front end with twos anchored to monetary policy expectations as threes and fives have continued to outperform. The 530 section of the curve seems unlikely to see a material push flatter, given where we are in the cycle. On the other hand, 2s10s, the section of the curve that receives the most market attention, appears caught in a holding pattern, one that we think ultimately results in a push flatter, but at the end of the day, 2019 was always going to be the year of the cyclical re-steepening And we anticipate that the market and investors have already begun to position for that shift. In the very near term, we have seen a shift of the momentum profile in favor of the extension of the rally in Treasuries. Moreover, DSIs have definitively pulled back from being overbought with plenty of room to grind back to the highs without creating any significant pushback, at least from a classic sentiment perspective. It's been a volatile start to the year to be sure, but as data comes back online and we progress through the next couple weeks, we expect some additional clarity in terms of the true health of the real economy, as well as investors' expectations for monetary policy. A call for a moment of stability on the price action front isn't the most exciting strategic call, so perhaps it's just a function of volatility fatigue.
2: Thanks for those thoughts, Ian. Turning to some of the conversations that you've had in the past week, what's been top
0: of mind with investors? Thanks, Sean. One of the questions that I've been hearing quite frequently over the course of the last week is whether or not the tightening cycle is finally complete. We are still of the mind that the Fed, whether they ultimately deliver another rate hike in 2019, will want to convince investors to at least price in some probability that we see another move this year.
2: So at what point, given the market's been pricing some element of a rate cut in different markets and uh, you know we haven't really had any massive Fed speak, at what point do you think the Fed comes in or different officials come in to try to job-own the market into at least an upward sloping curve?
0: I think that the timing between the January FOMC meeting and the Fed's decision to recast the market's perception of the direction of monetary policy will be important. And I think that it could start as soon as the run-up to the March meeting. Now, that doesn't mean that we will see a concerted effort to retrace some of what Powell has said recently, but rather simply an emphasis on flexibility and an emphasis on this notion that the Fed really is data-dependent there's an obvious question, what is the next meeting that's truly at play if we are going to see another rate hike? The Fed, I'm sure, would like to say that it's June or September, but from the market's perspective, there seems to be a clear focus on the December 2019 meeting.
2: Why, why that meeting in particular?
0: I think that the simple answer is The last time the Fed paused, which was in 2016, it was for exactly a year. So that would put a December rate hike back on the table. Historically, if we look at other tightening cycles, whether they ended with a pause that was ultimately followed by a rate cut or a pause that ended up with a incremental hike or two before it was ultimately reversed, the time frame is comparable call it 12 to 18 months. So I think that taking any potential move off the table for the next two or three meetings follows intuitively with what we've seen in the past.
2: Okay, that's fair on historical precedent. But is there anything that you think could show up or evolve in the next six months, nine months that could cause them to move in June or September instead?
0: Given that there has been a conspicuous absence of inflation during this cycle, as well as a flattening of the curve with outright levels lower than a lot of market participants anticipated, I would say there's very little that would actually get the Fed to move. And here's my logic. If the Fed would like to see the curve bear-re-steepen, one of the easiest ways to do that is to signal being lower for longer while inflation and the economy continue to heat up
2: so it seems maybe perhaps a little counterintuitively if the fed lowers rates it actually leads to higher rates further out the curve
0: well it is stimulative of inflation it's stimulative of the real economy and given the idea that the return of term premium would be predicated on some more material inflation being priced into the system i think it holds at least in that context particularly given the fed's emphasis on the domestic economy despite what we see playing out around the rest of the world
2: so you and i have much discussed our skepticism that wage growth need necessarily to feed through into broader inflationary pressure. But with the labor market continuing to tighten with average hourly earnings, well-established north of 3%, do you kind of eventually see a risk that this would manifest itself?
0: Well, my assumption has always been that the longer we see wage growth running hot, the higher the probability that that finally translates through to realized inflation. Now, not all inflation is created equal. The Fed worries far more about demand-driven core inflation than they do with, obviously, the headline moves. But more importantly, the supply side on the core inflation front can also be troubling for the Fed in a way that really brings into question the idea that the Phillips curve remains relevant. For context, the New York Fed recently published a study that showed during 2018, tariffs alone contributed three-tenths of a percent to CPI. So with headline CPI at 1.9%, shaving off three-tenths of a percent means the inflation profile in the U.S. looks far less inspired, and that in the context of average hourly earnings back towards the cycle peaks. So
2: if it would take inflation to get the Fed to move before December, and you're kind of skeptical that inflation's around the corner, I guess, how does that play out in your head?
0: I've tended to be a bit more concerned about the risk of a retracement lower in inflation, particularly because if we look within the core series, we see that the one steady contributor is OER or shelter costs. And shelter costs tend to decline once the Fed starts tightening and housing comes under pressure. I think that the most material risks over the next year are actually going to be on the downside, even if the Fed is willing to signal a pause at this exact moment.
2: If the risks are to the downside, do you think there's a real possibility of a cut
0: this year? I certainly think that there's a real possibility of a cut over the next several quarters. I don't think that it is going to be 2019 unless there is a significant repricing, whether that is in the credit space or whether that is in the energy sector that then flows through to domestic equities, because we're a much bigger energy producer on the world stage than we have been in a while. It's interesting that... In most prior recessions, what we tend to see is we tend to see a spike in energy prices that undermines corporate profitability and leads to a a slowdown, whether it's a technical recession or something more significant. There's a strong argument to be made that this cycle is somewhat different because A, we've become far more efficient in our usage of energy as a nation, and B, the efforts that have been made on the production side. To the point, the notion that 2.4% might be the terminal rate for this cycle certainly resonates for me.
2: That's all well and good on the rate path side. But the Fed also signaled that pretty strong look ahead into the balance sheet and that they're going to taper or stop or somehow all of this is going to interact with all of this. How how do you see this playing out? Would they try to announce both a taper and a stop at the same move? as an interest rate move or not? How do you see the MBS and the Treasury portfolio being different? It, personally, I have a lot of outstanding questions. And I feel like it could be helpful to try to flush some of those out.
0: The introduction of the balance sheet during the crisis certainly complicates the Fed's current position of being on hold, because in fact, as the balance sheet continues to run off, they're technically not on hold. When I contemplate the challenges that Powell faces in signaling a willingness to keep monetary policy steady for the time being, I'm reminded of the only other central bank that entered QE and subsequently tried to work their way out of it, and that was the Bank of Japan. And we all know that they eventually had to double down on QE. So with that context, the Fed signaling that they're more flexible in terms of the balance sheet was a great first step, but now they need to define what flexibility really means. Sure, they're going to have to stop the runoff at some point, whether that is with excess reserves targeted at a trillion or a trillion and a quarter remains to be seen i think that for risk assets the most important aspect is simply the idea that the fed is going to change not necessarily how they change that means it's just a classic signaling of a willingness to be more accommodative We all know that the Fed doesn't want mortgages as a permanent part of their balance sheet. So an effort to use a pause or a runoff to change the composition seems to be feasible, although given the relevance of the housing sector to the wealth effect in the U.S., and the prospects for a slower economic outlook in the near term, it becomes particularly tricky for the Fed to step away from the mortgage market. I don't know, John, what are you thinking?
2: I think your point about how they step away from the mortgage market is very well taken. And we're the runoff to severely tighten conditions in the housing market. We might've already seen that start to take place. You know, over the past year or so, the Fed's been at a terminal rate or close to a terminal rate in the MBS runoff, and we haven't really seen a blown out in OAS and the MBS space. One idea that I've been talking with clients about is the idea that the Fed could use this as an opportunity not only to get out of MBS, but to buy something they'd rather be in. And particularly what I mean by that are treasury bills. Who knows if this is how they'll end up doing it. But one option could be the Fed takes maturing MBS and reinvest those in the secondary market to buy treasury bills. That has a couple nice developments to it. First, it would alleviate some of the collateral oversupply that we are seeing in the bill market. Second, historically, bills were 35% or so of Fed holdings. They're 0% now. So longer run, they're going to own Treasury bills. I doubt it'll be 35% because that's a trillion in Treasury bills. But some type of rotation like that could be valuable. But the reality is we don't have clear guidance from the Fed on what to expect. And this contrasts with the experience going into the initial tapering of the roll-off and introduction where there was a clear schedule, everybody knew what was going to happen months in advance, and it, you know, at least for a while, was very much like watching paint dry.
0: Well, this all comes at a period when the Treasury Department is tasked with borrowing record amounts throughout a variety of different products, not just bills. I think that some of the recent discussion on the Borrowing Committee uh, has been Informative, at least in terms of what type of decisions they're trying to make at this point.
2: Yeah, and TBEC, the the borrowing committee that you referred to, was recently tasked with kind of a blue sky exercise. We're Treasury gonna need to fund twelve trillion dollars in funding needs over the next decade. How should they go about doing this? And some of the ideas that came out seemed a little bit out there to us, if not uh, interesting. But it really speaks to the fact that twelve trillion is a very large number. And Treasury is going to try and need to do this in a way that's the least cost to the taxpayer. One thing that I noticed in the discussion, and this makes sense based off of how the Treasury market has been evolving, is an emphasis on domestic demand rather than foreign demand. And this is probably going to be one of those structural secular drifts where – increasingly domestic investors take hold of treasuries. How this plays out, I know some of the bond bears like to use this as the argument for 30s going to 5%, but you once again would have, say, the counterfactual of Japan, where you have huge amounts of debt, but a lot of domestic ownership and 10-year yields in the single digits.
0: To your point, the Treasury Department has suggested, again, whether these products actually come to fruition or not, Some forms of issuance that appear to be very, very focused on the domestic borrowers. One of my personal favorites is shifting the TIPS issuance to focus on specific CPI subcomponents. For example, if an investor wanted to hedge against rising tuition costs, they could purchase a treasury security that returns more based on that subcomponent of inflation.
2: And that can be particularly nice for some five twenty nine plans or other plans that are specifically designed to invest in future education proceeds. Another another subcomponent that they flagged was healthcare being a potential option where you're trying to basically cover your future healthcare needs and current aggregate CPI does not do an effective or efficient job at covering you later in life.
0: That certainly would fit well with the aging demographic here in the U.S., and it does draw the parallels, as you already have, with the experience in Japan, which, again, despite having not dissimilar demographic concerns, is in a low-inflation, low-growth now environment, and rates struggle to trade positive.
2: So in addition to the subcomponents, if that were to happen, that's a long way down the road, lots of study, lots of prognostication. One of the options that struck me as extremely reasonable was the possibility of a 20-year issuance. We currently have 10s and 30s, and there's a pretty big kink in that curve, and there are a lot of domestic LDI investor bases that would be pretty attractive. Uh, What was your take
0: One of the other aspects that I found to be compelling, although admittedly the audience for a discussion of this topic might be limited, was the idea of increasing the fungibility between coupon and principal strips.
2: So for some quick background for our listeners on what we mean by strips and principles and coupons and P's and C's, an investor who wants to get really long duration can basically buy just the principal side of a treasury bond. That's the principal. And strip or separate the coupons from the principal. So you can get the principles and coupons trading separately with different CUSIPs in the market. The problem with doing that, though, is it creates a really bifurcated liquidity structure. So you frequently, and you do, see coupons trading at 5, 10 basis point discount to the exact same cash flow on the principal side. Ian, what you were talking about, I think, is a really clever idea is if you make the two fungible, you're able basically to combine the product, improve liquidity, you make the asset more desirable and attractive for asset managers, that only improves investment options for those guys. And it also lowers Treasury's cost of borrowing over time, which for you and me means capping the, any potential backup in rates.
0: There's also an active debate. It's been in the market for a while. Obviously, it's been floated several times by the Treasury Department, and that is introducing a 20-year maturity point. A 20-year maturity point has a natural subset of buyers because it maps much better with the classic bond contract rather than the ultra-long. Enough about bonds. Let's talk about rates for a while. Are you saying
2: you've had your fill of supply?
0: Well, apparently they're making plenty more of it, and we're going to be the ones tasked with taking it down. That said, there has been a reprieve to some of the apprehension that we've seen in the market throughout most of 2019, and in part, that's due to the fact that the government has been reopened. It's temporary, or at least that's what Washington is telling us at this moment. The February 15th deadline, I think, is a bit pivotal, and as we've already seen, the translation between D.C. uncertainty and lower consumer and business confidence has been tangible.
2: And one can easily imagine a world where not only was this the longest government shutdown in history, but they were at such loggerheads that they immediately, well, not immediately, they took a couple weeks off, but then they shut down relatively quickly again, that kind of double dip or one-two impact could be pretty influential on sentiment writ large at a relatively precarious moment in the cycle.
0: Well, it certainly would be bullish for the treasury market. Uncertainty and anything that would weigh on risk assets certainly will bias our rates call a bit lower. That said, the notion that simply shutting the government down a second time is going to have a more material impact on growth is really difficult to get one's arms around. One thing we do know is that data collection will become an even bigger issue, and the important series that the Fed uses to guide monetary policy might simply be unavailable or at least unreliable.
2: Yeah, there was some research from New York Fed economists who basically argued that the delayed data releases that resulted from the last shutdown didn't have a big impact on their growth forecasts and the error bands and their accuracy, given they're pretty hard to forecast. That being said, they did flag that if data releases in mid-February or longer started to be delayed, that might start having a material impact. And if we re-enter a shutdown, we'd hit that window.
0: And let us not forget, the rating agencies have also come out and given warnings that if the government is not up and functional by March, the U.S. could be facing a credit downgrade. Now, the last time that happened, it ultimately ended up being a bullish moment for the treasury market. I wouldn't expect that to be materially different. After all, it's more of a crisis of conscience than it is anything else.
2: Yeah, it's a little bit disappointing that we're once again rolling into debt limit season and all the prognostication, uncertainty, and still a pretty high likelihood they solve it at the last minute, but it's our job to be worried about that in the meantime.
0: That sounds to me like what's affectionately known as a tomorrow problem. Perhaps we can cover that in a future episode. And now, let's turn to the closest thing we could muster to the combination of an NPR personality and the realities of a career in finance. This American bond.
2: I think I would have gone with between two FRNs.
0: Ugh, can't teach wit. In the week ahead, the market will benefit from the return of first tier economic data as we have the CPI release as well as retail sales. Consumption is a big focus at this point in the cycle if for no other reason than the fact that confidence measures have returned to the lowest levels since 2017, and the correlation between spending and confidence is high. GDP estimates for the fourth quarter are still relatively solid. Consensus is somewhere in the mid-twos. But a clearer picture of the holiday spending season could offer further insight into the overall state of the consumer. The more important release is going to be Core CPI, and in this context, we're somewhat worried about the base effects that come into play, and we'll be watching the year-over-year print, which is expected to ease somewhat to 2.1, to be the bigger driver. This is somewhat of a shift because typically we focus on the three-month moving average of the core figure. However, the broader markets, including those in the equity space, have become very focused on the Fed's balance sheet and any signal that there might be a change on the horizon. The fact that Powell has come out and acknowledged that the one thing that could change the on-hold policy is the return or an acceleration of inflation makes the release all that more pivotal. We've been focused on the owner's equivalent rent component within the core inflation series, OER, And while it has managed to continue its monthly gains in the 0.2, 0.3 range, which is pretty impressive given what's going on in the broader housing market, we continue to see the risk skewed toward the downside. At some point, there will be a catch up from the negative momentum in housing as it flows through to prices. And as this data is from the beginning of 2019, we'll be especially interested to see the departure point situation in Europe hasn't improved, we continue to see downward revisions both in terms of the actual economic data as well as forecasts for the way 2019 will play out. Given that front-end yields remain well into negative territory in several key markets, most notably of which being Germany, we anticipate at one point 10-year Treasury yields in a 260-270 to range will be looked back upon as a good buying opportunity. In our attempts to be intellectually honest, we will be the first to admit that when the market is rallying, it's easier to be bullish. But at the end of the day, we do expect that the big story in the treasury market, tens and thirties, will be that of a trading range for 2019. And we're at a moment where we're redefining the floor of that range. Whether that means we get to 240, 235, or the rally stops out at 250 is going to be a function of the way the domestic data develops, but increasingly the perception of what is going on on the global growth front. The trade war persists, and if anything, it seems poised to escalate, with the early March deadline quickly approaching and Trump having come out and said that he will not be meeting with Chinese officials to negotiate a deal before the deadline is reached. It's unclear whether or not that simply means the deadline will be extended or if the White House will take the more aggressive approach of implementing an additional round of tariffs. At this point, we're erring on the side of assuming that there is some type of extension, but obviously this is a space which warrants watching. We've reached the point in the episode where we would like to extend both our gratitude and our sympathy for those who have managed to listen this far. We appreciate the interest in hearing our thoughts, and we'll endeavor to continue compensating for our lack of insight with the occasional witty turn of phrase. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy efforts as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. Please email me at ian.lingen at bmo.com. That's ian.lyngen dot L-Y-N-G-E-N at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative.
1: This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell, or to buy, or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts, and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you. To the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable.